0: To the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Well, good morning. You guys excited to dive into Revelation? It's been an incredible journey so far. I've been totally loving this study. It has been such a challenge. Uh, Just a little snapshot on what my week is like. Um, Studying for messages like this usually takes me two or three days just of notes. And then I have a nervous breakdown trying to figure out how to put all of that into a 45-minute message that I'm trying to cut down to 30 minutes. So um, if I if I fail on the time, forgive me, but uh, this is really hard. So I'm just uh, out here. But I'm so thankful that you're here. Again, for those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. And we have that three-week challenge. We challenge you to spend the next three weeks in a row uh, with us because we know how hard it is for you to find a spiritual home in one week. And so we just make that challenge to you. And we our prayer is, while you're coming, that at the end of that three weeks that you are led of God to make this your spiritual home And if that is the case, we say, welcome home, beloved, welcome home. Um, We are continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 3. Can you believe it? This is week 9, and we're only in the third chapter. So that's how much is in this book. It's pretty pretty deep, pretty awesome. Um, But just one of the things, as I was backstage just praying before coming out here, I always pray, God, let me speak with the right heart. Because some of the things that are spoken in the book of Revelation, especially in these churches, they're, they're hard things. Jesus has a strong presentation to these churches. And, and just in knowing who my God is, knowing who Jesus is from the Gospels, I know that it grieves his heart to see his people suffer. It grieves his heart to see his people deceived. It grieves his heart to see his people fall away. But what I also know from the parables that he told that the Lord rejoices when one sinner turns in repentance. And so just as grievous as these words are to the Lord, so is the excitement and the expectation of the Lord for one to hear and respond to what he's saying. And so my heart is, is that as we read this, it, we, we don't walk away with a, heavy, a sense of heaviness, but we hear the heart of God, that it's really a cry from his spirit for us to hear with ears that hear, to see with eyes that can see. To have a heart that is ready to believe what he says and a mind that can understand what the Lord is speaking. And that's our prayer today as we dive into Revelation chapter 3, looking at the church of Sardis. So let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And this is what Jesus says to the church of Sardis. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and yet they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come into this house of prayer, to this gathering of believers, and we ask you, God, to the very, the very thing you, you challenged the, the reader, those who have an ear, let them hear. God, we ask you to give us ears that hear. Give us eyes that see. Give us a mind that understands and a heart that can believe and receive everything that you have for us. Lord, and I pray for the heaviness that has been brought into this place from a week of battle. God, we pray a lifting of that heaviness. Claiming the promise that you said you exchanged the spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. God, I pray against every wall erected in our hearts that stands in the way of your word penetrating like seed in good soil. God, just as Jericho walls fell... At the trumpet sound and the shout of praise, God, we ask you to break down the walls of our hearts so that we can receive what you have for us today. And Lord, God, let your word shine. Let your spirit move. God, draw us closer into your presence. Enlighten us to the wisdom and glory of this coming Messiah, Savior, Jesus. And God, may we worship in greater ways in all God's people said, amen and amen. So just as we've done throughout the study, the beginning of these letters, we first by examining how Jesus introduces himself, and again he's introducing himself uh, using part of what John's description was of him in Revelation chapters, uh, chapter one. And here Jesus introduces himself as the one with the seven spirits and the seven stars. And we saw earlier in the study that. This imagery represented not just these angelic guardians over the church, but also the eyes of the Lord that go to and fro throughout the earth and report back unto God the works of men, what mankind is doing in the earth. And so as we begin, as we see he says, I have the seven stars and I have the the seven angels. I, I have these in my hand. What are we seeing? We're seeing that they have now come back to report to God what the deeds of this church and the churches of the church of Revelation, what they have been doing. And what is the report for this church in Sardis? Jesus says in verse 3 of the book of Revelation chapter 3, he says, I know your works and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So the report of the eyes of the Lord on this church is that on the outside they look amazing, but on the inside, they're dead. What's interesting is that the word reputation here also comes from a Greek word that means the name, referring to their identity. And remember, according to the Hebrew mindset, and John is a Hebrew, so even though he's writing in Greek, he still has the mind of an ancient Hebrew. The name is synonymous or inseparable from the person who the name belongs to. So the reputation or the name of this church, it appears as if they were full of life, but inside they are dead. Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So this church had a name, a reputation for being alive, but Jesus reveals the true state of their spiritual lives. They were spiritually dead. Now, it's interesting that word dead can be translated as the word dead, But it can also refer to a corpse among corpses, like a dead body. So what Jesus is telling him as he says, you need to wake up and you need to strengthen what remains because what remains is about to die. Evidently, there were some believers who still weren't, they weren't fully dead, but they were on their way to being dead. There, There were still some that were that were alive, but nonetheless, beloved, if you are a dead corpse among dead corpses, what does that mean? It means there's no real difference between you and the crowd around you. There is no significant difference. You're counted among the dead. If we liken that to our modern day, this would be synonymous to a religious organization that began as a faithful, evangelistic, soul-winning, demon-slaying, sin-stomping church. Hallelujah. That's what we want to be, right? Wait, are we dead this morning? Is this letter for us? Come on. Right? We want to be on fire. We want to be lit. We want to be excited for the kingdom and even more excited for the king. So you have a church that started strong, but now they've descended into unbelief. And they are creating disciples who are following that example. Now they exist as a religious community organization that meets in a Christianized building, but not for the purpose of building the kingdom of Christ. They lost the why behind the what. You know, I heard an awesome illustration. Uh, it was actually a comedian that was uh, doing a stand-up show at a church, and he pulls somebody out of the crowd, and he, he does a quick pull, like how many, who here can sing? And uh, they had several raise their hands, and he picked this guy who said he could sing. And he said, now I'm going to give you a task. I want you to sing Amazing Grace like it's Sunday celebration day, at your church, like you're getting together. It's a happy happy celebration day. I just want you to sing the way you would in a situation like that. And so he begins to sing, and he sings, you know, kind of uh, joyously, like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So it was very jubilant. And he goes through the whole, the whole song, the whole first verse. And then the comedian changes it, and he says, okay, now I want you to sing it as if you are a slave on a slave boat, on your way to bondage in your destination? Or if you were a prisoner in prison for life, knowing there's no hope of parole, how would you sing it then, and the man's tune changed? It was more, amazing grace, how sweet the sound It say a wretch like me. It was different. Why was it different? Because of the purpose, the intention, the why behind the what. When you lose the why behind the what, you lose the purpose for why you are gathering at all. Proverbs 20:19 says, when there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. They, they perish. They turn away. They walk away. And this church, as they've lost their why, their beliefs, their ideals, their agenda for gathering together, even their moral code began to mirror the world. And it had little to nothing to do with the kingdom of God. How do we know? Because in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, the second part of that verse, Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their works were incomplete. Now again, the Jewish people, they have a, a very important word in their language. We, we actually use it in our language and we translate it in English as peace. But the word they use for peace means more than just feeling good. It's more of an idea of completeness or wholeness. In Isaiah 53, when Jesus Goes to the cross, Isaiah says, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was was chastised that we might have peace. By his stripes we are healed. We know that Christ came to to deliver us, to heal us holistically, mind, body, and soul, or spirit. Or our emotional griefs, our physical ailings, our spiritual woes. Jesus went to the cross to heal us of all of that so we could be whole. We could be complete. The word for peace in the ancient Hebrew language is the word shalom. It's wholeness. It's complete. But Jesus tells these Christians, these believers, your works are incomplete. Which means the focus of their religious life became solely about the good works that they were doing. Again, they were presenting well on the outside, but they were doing it apart from believing faith. And we know from Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you're looking good on the outside, but you're not doing it with any faith. This is a lot like Jesus and his encounter with the rich young ruler. You remember that story? Jesus is walking along and this, this rich guy comes to him and be like, Jesus, man, I, I mean, I am so, I just want to report on my life. I have been doing so good. Right? I've kept all of the commandments since my birth. I have not failed to keep any law of God. I've been doing great. And Jesus looks at him and he agrees with them. Yeah, you have been doing good. But then he says, but this one thing you lack, there's one thing you're missing. You want to know how you can be saved? Here it is. Sell all of your stuff and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Give up your life as you know it And come be my disciple. And you know what happened? He walked away sorrowfully. Why? Because even though he looked great on the outside, he was missing one important thing. He may have done everything well on the outside before men, but there was something severely lacking on the inside before God. This would be like a church, again, doing a lot of good things for their community. Serving the community, in the schools, serving the schools, volunteering, donating. Involved in all the programs. It makes them feel really good, but they never share the gospel with anyone that they are serving. They don't share the message, the one thing that can actually make a difference and rescue the lives of the people that they're serving. The one thing the community really needs. And and, and why would they neglect that? Maybe it's for fear of being thought as weird or being pushy. Maybe they're fearing being rejected or simply that the people of the church just really don't believe the gospel is that important enough to share. They think just doing good or loving others is enough. And we should do good. The Bible says we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. We should do good to everyone. But, beloved, our righteousness is not dependent on our good works, but His How a church goes from rocking on all cylinders to being a liberal hangout for religious unbelievers doesn't happen overnight. It's a progression of compromise over years and years. This harkens us back to the parable of the builder. Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 14, verse 27 through 29. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin, don't begin to follow me Until you count the cost for who begins construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. I get asked all the time, when are you going to put a building on that property? And you know, if we spent what we have in the bank right now to put a building on that property, we wouldn't even get a parking lot. We got, we got a ways to go. If any of you are holding out on a million-dollar insurance policy or something that you want to cash in, send our way. We'd much appreciate it. But just think of what he's saying. He's saying if you don't count the cost of what you're getting ready to engage in, you're going to fall up short. A disciple that doesn't understand the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, he said, it's in taking up your cross, meaning your whole life. Not just your Sunday mornings. It's your whole life. It's the reason you exist. It's the purpose of why you breathe every breath from here on out. For me to live is Christ. It's your whole heart. Not just the parts we're okay with. It's all of it. right? He came to deliver us from all the darkness that we've been living in our entire lives. He's not afraid of what's hiding in your heart. He wants it. He wants access to it because he wants to deliver you of it. A disciple, the cost is surrender. If we don't understand the basics of our faith, we're not going to finish the work we began when we first gave our lives to Christ. And just like Sardis, when the pressure is on, We will fall away. And beloved, if you're not alive through walking in the Spirit, you are simply a dead man walking. So Jesus encourages them to remember what you received in the beginning. Remember what you heard. Remember where you came from. Remember what was of first and most importance. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the good news of the word of God Romans 10:17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing through what the word of Christ faith comes by hearing How are you going to become a disciple? How are you going to be saved, redeemed, transformed, unless you first hear what Jesus Christ did for you? That he came born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He was murdered innocently. He did it so that he could take your sin upon his cross. And then three days, he conquered death. He rose victoriously, ascended now, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved, redeemed, and set free from their sin. They can be made right with God, and the invitation is to all who would call on the name of the Lord. It's the gospel. It's the call to all who live. Their faith began through the revelation of God's word, the preaching of the gospel, and the initial response to it by committing their lives to Christ. And what they received at the beginning was the key to their salvation. And here Jesus is saying, if you don't obey the message, if you don't continue in repentance, they didn't continue abiding in the vine, giving God their hearts. They slowly turned their church from a gathering of believers into a religious meeting place devoid of the Holy Spirit. They were a people who met for church, but they didn't meet with God. And I just have to say, how sad. You have the greatest gift in all the universe, readily available, within your reach, but you never get there because you're not reaching for it. Another term for being dead in the scripture is the term falling asleep or sleep. Jesus in John 11, when Lazarus dies, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them that, you know, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they thought that, you know, he was, they knew he was sick, and they thought he was just referring to him being asleep, but what Jesus really meant was that Lazarus had already died. So this term sleep is also synonymous with death. It comes from a Greek word called uh, is where we get the English word hypnosis. It's the act of putting someone to sleep. And both in the Bible and modern English, the word sleep, we usually use in three ways, natural sleep. Moral or spiritual inactivity and or death. These believers in Sardis, they were in a hypnotic state. They were not all there. They were morally and spiritually asleep. And if you are morally and spiritually asleep, you are spiritually dead. And they weren't walking in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Beloved, if you ain't moving, you ain't living. If you ain't moving, you ain't living. They were steeped in this religious system that fooled them into thinking they were right with God all the while they were headed toward judgment. And I think many believers get caught up into this, especially depending on what type of churches you grew up in. There are some belief systems that lend towards this type of thinking, such as um, some people's belief on baptism. You know, I've talked to many people who they they went to certain groups and they were baptized when they were kids, like when they were babies. Or they were baptized at some point when they were younger, and they think because I was baptized, that I'm a shoe in for, for salvation, that I'm I'm I got I'm sealed, I'm I'm good to go. And but yet they live like the devil. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, this is what Jesus says in the Great Commission. He says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be what? Will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice he doesn't say whoever is not baptized. Will be condemned. He says, whoever is not what? Whoever doesn't believe. Baptism is a righteous work when it's connected to faith in Christ Jesus. That's why it comes after the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You you commit your life to Christ, you place your faith and trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit to be born again, you're baptized to symbolize you've been dead with Christ and now you've risen with Him. To live a new life. But many believers, they grow up, they're like, oh, I got sprinkled. I, I, I mean, I've, I got baptized in church when I was a kid. I'm good to go. But yet their life does not show the markers of true salvation. And they're unwilling to hear, to listen, because they believed a doctrine that is leading their hearts astray. Again, without faith, it's empty, it's meaningless. You can get dunked 15 times and still go to hell. The Bible is full. Of stories of people who thought they were right with God because of the religious work, but ended up falling away. If your religious system includes outward works to seal the deal without relying on a heart burning with passion for the Lord, it will be an empty message. Jesus says true worshipers will arise and worship in spirit and in truth. The word spirit is the same word for heart, it's the sentient element in man that's responsible for thinking, emotions, processing your inward being. So not just your mind, thinking through logical information, but also your emotional center. He wants to be worshipped with all of you. Jesus says to them in Revelation 3, verse 3, he says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Isn't Jesus so generous that he keeps calling out to them, saying, look, here's your condition. Wake up. I've, something's coming. If you keep going down this road, something's coming. But if you wake up, something else is coming. There's something better coming for you. In Revelation 3, he says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. This, this term, wake up, this call to wake up, comes, is all throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, as he's calling out to his people to turn from their sin, to wake up to the truth, and we can see this in Ephesians 5.14, Isaiah 51.17, Isaiah 52.1, Isaiah 61, Malachi 4.2, Romans 13.11. All through the Bible, God is calling out to his people, wake up for your salvation is at hand. Wake up. It's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Is judgment coming? Yes. But it's not God's will that any should perish, but all will come to repentance. All will be saved. He's eager to relent and not punish. To call us back, he encourages us to meditate on what we first received, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he still warns us, if we don't, something's coming. Jesus himself is going to stand against them. He's calling them back to believing loyalty. And this judgment that's coming is going to come swiftly like a thief. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, he says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. When it comes, it's going to hit them, and they're going to not know what hit them. In the verse prior to, Paul refers to this part as coming as a thief in the night. An unexpected moment. And this goes back to Jesus' parable about the servants who are not faithful as they awaited on the master's return. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. We're going to read it. And we can see as he's going through this parable, there are many other allusions to other end time uh, teachings of Christ. And we can see how it comes together in Luke chapter 12. First he says in verse 35, stay dressed for action. Somebody say, "Dressed for action. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. What's that remind you of? Maybe the parable of the ten virgins? The five that were wise kept their lamps burning, while the five that were foolish let their lamps burn out. It's coming together. Verse 36, he says, and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. We'll see this in the, in the church of Laodicea. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. Somebody say awake. Blessed are those who are awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we've been looking at over the the study. Where we eat the manna that God has prepared for those who conquer. And isn't it interesting, Jesus says, we will be served by him. He will dress himself for service, and the servants will eat at the hand of the master. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house would have known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When Jesus says, be dressed for readiness, in other words, he's calling us to be faithful, be watchful, be ready, be dressed in readiness. This goes back all the way to the Passover in the book of Exodus when Jesus or God commanded them, eat this Passover meal, but be dressed. Keep your belt on. Be ready to go at a moment's notice. The moment the, the, the call is made in the nation of Israel is to leave Egypt, you need to be ready to roll. Matter of fact, you need to eat this meal as fast as you can. And be ready to go. Be ready. Be anticipating the call. Always be in a state of expectation for the Lord's return. Why? So you won't fall asleep. If you're always ready, then you won't fall asleep. They had to be ready at a moment's notice to leave when the single signal or alarm was sounded. In the same readiness, being dressed in readiness is being spoken over the church of Sardis that you need to be alive when the Lord returns. You need to be awake. Be ready at any moment. Don't be caught asleep or you'll face the judgment. As believers in Christ, we need to be spiritually active and faithful to what the Lord has called us to do and who the Lord has called us to be as we prepare for his coming. We need to be growing personally in our relationship with God as we press into prayer and Bible study and service and telling others about Jesus in our own personal relationship with Christ. But then we also need to grow in our relationship and fellowship with other believers as we worship together, as we study his word together, as we serve together, as we pray together, as we know the time of his return is very close. We need to be going out and sharing the gospel together. This is why we do City Walk throughout the year to share what Jesus has done for others. We need to be making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, living like citizens of heaven, not like citizens in the earth, not blending in with the rest of the corpses, but standing apart from them, offering them what will bring them true and everlasting life. So Jesus said we won't know the day or the hour when he comes, but we will discern the time that his coming is close if we're watching. And it's that revelation, that understanding that his return could be at any moment that should motivate us to stay faithful because we recognize we have very little time left to prepare. Verse 2 in Revelation 3, he says their works were not complete because they were lacking something. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, he does speak well of these that were left who had not soiled their garments he says there's some people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy there's some in this church that haven't fallen asleep yet they haven't turned to worship other gods they're not living wickedly they might not be the strongest believers or the most outspoken but at least at this point they're still counted as faithful and their faithfulness will win them a white robe And that white robe symbolizes, just like the white stone, it symbolizes the righteousness of the saints. And not only do they get white robes, but Jesus also says in verse 5, that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, we see this conquering language. It's those who conquer, who remain loyal unto death, will be clothed in white. And those clothed in white will never be blotted out of the book of life. It seems like this book of life is pretty important. You want your name in the book of life. The significance of the white robes directly relates to who is written in the book of life. So what is the book of life? The books that are opened in heaven refer to... Daniel's original vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, we're not going to read it. You can go back and reference that later. But in Daniel 7 is where we first see the heavens open, God sitting on the throne, and the court sitting in judgment, and the books are open. And the Apostle John reiterates this same scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, before God's great white throne of judgment, the judgment that's coming in the end. And here's what John said. He said, I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books, somebody say the books, the books were opened. So the books were opened for the dead, but then there was another book opened. So there's a separation. There are two categories. There are the books and then the book, and it's the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So we have the books and we have the book. The books judge the dead for what they've done, but the book, the book of life, isn't for judgment, but for salvation, for those who are going to inherit eternal life. It's the record of the saints, the righteous who are faithful to Christ, and they can't be blotted out of this book. Why? Because they remain loyal unto death. Those who are not found written in the book of life were judged according to the books, And they're cast away into judgment. And what are they being judged for? They're being judged for their works, their incomplete works, their works that lacked shalom. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works? Somebody say dead works. So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross... Was done to purge our conscience, our guilty conscience, from dead works so that we could serve the living God. The reason Jesus died to deliver us from the power of death, including the guilt we carry over our dead works, is because our dead works, these works we do according to our sinful nature, affect what type of garment we're able to wear. In Jude chapter 23, Jude writes this, or verse 23. Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire that's out of the judgment. To others, show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by the flesh. The word flesh is synonymous with our sin nature. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he says, our righteousness apart from God is like filthy rags. So the garment stained by the flesh is the garment stained by sin The very nature we are all born with because of Adam's rebellion against God that unleashed the curse of death. Paul in Romans 14 says, what is not of faith is sin. So your garment is your covering. And we all have a garment. We all have a covering. Even now, as we live and breathe right now, we are all covered by a covering. And you will either be covered by what the flesh produces, or you'll be covered by what faith through the Holy Spirit Produces. The Holy Spirit is the bleach pen to your eternal garment. Y'all like the bleach pen? Comes in handy, especially when you're wearing white shirts. It's notorious that anytime I get a white shirt, I end up staining it in like the first month, and then I can't wear it again. Bleach pen comes in really handy. You get a little something on ears and it comes right out. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit acts like the bleach pen to your eternal garment. And he works with Jesus to cleanse the garment that's been stained by the flesh, stained with dead works, to purify you. Ephesians five twenty six and 27 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, is working to cleanse our garments stained by sin. Psalm one nineteen nine says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word. And he's using the word of God to do it, to instruct us, to encourage us, to correct us. So in Sardis, the church began to let their feelings, a.k.a. their flesh, determine the truth. And become the director of the direction of their lives. And the determiner of the purpose of their lives. And the reason why they were dead is because they were swimming in their flesh. It was all about the pride of their lives. But the word of God and faith in the word reveals that Jesus and his will for our lives, it's vital believing in God's word and what God's word says about the life of a believer Allowing the word of God to speak into our lives about how we should live, how we should think, how we should believe. It's vital to the cleansing process that the spirit of God takes us through to prepare us spiritually for what is to come. And a spotless covering is vitally important because it determines whether or not you're welcomed to the feast at the end of the age. Whether or not your name is written in the book of life. Matthew 22, verse 8 Through 13, Jesus tells a parable about this feast in the end, and here's what he says. He says, and he said to his servant, the wedding feast is ready, but the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor, so go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see, so the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it? that you're here without wedding clothes. But the man had no reply. And the king said to his aides, bind his hands and his feet and throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a feast coming and there is a dress code for the feast. If you don't have the proper dress, you're not getting in. Why do brides wear white In their wedding. It's to symbolize purity. It's to symbolize their chastity. Why do believers have white in the vision of the end? It's because we are the bride of Jesus Christ and we are wrapped in our purity and our righteousness, our righteous covering prepared for the wedding. And God doesn't accept any other covering but the white garment. That's why it's being prepared for us. It's really important you wear the right clothes to the wedding feast, not clothes sold by dead works or those clothes that aren't white and pure because it's not going to cover you appropriately for the party. But there is one saving grace because we are all born into this life with this sinful nature. I, just this week in Romans, I'm reading Romans chapter 7, listening to Paul listening to it in the message version, but Paul's talking about how he has this battle with his flesh, how he always, he wants to do what's good, but he ends up doing the opposite. And he wants to keep from doing what's bad, but he ends up doing the opposite. And he can't seem to stop himself from messing up all the time. Anybody relate with that? I do. It's this sinful nature that has had authority in our lives since we were born. Jesus came to help deliver us from that, and one day we'll be free from it for all eternity. We won't have this tug-of-war battle inside anymore. But right now, as we're in this cursed world, and we're in this cursed existence, there's one saving grace, there is one word, and there's a work that brings to life. In Revelation 3, 5, Jesus says, to the one who conquers will be clothed, Thus in white garments, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And here's what he says. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you conquer, if you're dressed in white, if your name's written in the book of life, I'm going to confess you before my father. This is not the first time Jesus has spoken these words. This goes back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus is revealing a mystery here about how to get the white robe, how to ensure your name is written in the book of life. Here's what he says. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. The word acknowledge and confess with the same word. So he says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. This is what he said in Revelation 3.5. But if you keep reading in Matthew 10, he goes on to say, but if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. The implication is that if you deny the Lord, you're going to enter into judgment. And there are really three ways to deny him. You can deny him by what you believe. You can deny him by what you say. And you can deny him by how you behave. You can deny him by what you believe, you can deny him by what you say, and you can deny him by how you behave. But well, what do you mean? Well, you can not believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. You can attend a church, you can do good things, but if you don't have that as the core belief that Jesus died and rose again and has taken your sin upon himself and you've given him your heart and life, then there is no salvation. So you might be doing good things, you might even be saying good things, but salvation hasn't happened. You can deny him by what you say. You cannot confess him as your Lord and Savior. You can say he's just a good teacher. Or, yeah, he's he's pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, I'm good with Jesus. And you can deny him by what you, how you behave. You can say you believe. You can say you've accepted. You can say he's Lord. But if you live in a way that doesn't show that in your life, you're denying him. There's a good book out by Craig Rochelle called The Christian Atheist. It's about people who acknowledge him with their lips, but deny him by the way they live. So you can say Jesus is Lord all day long, but if we don't believe it, it's going to show in our lives. Just like in Matthew 7, many stand before him in the end, say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these great and mighty things? And Jesus says, I have no idea who you are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Your works are incomplete. The beloved, the one who conquers, is the one who is faithful. Who maintains believing loyalty even unto death. The one who never changes his association with Christ. Who acknowledges Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Those who are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I just had this burden on my heart as I was preparing for this week. Especially for our young people. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Young people... I'm just going to say this from my heart. You need to quit letting godless people inform you of what is good and right in your life. You have people who are devoid of the Holy Spirit, who have no truth in them, who seem to dictate to what everyone else is culturally acceptable and good and right. And those people are on their way to judgment. And the devil wants to take you with them. Don't let godless people inform you of what's cool and what's funny and what's good. Let God's word inform you of what is good and what's funny and what's right. Don't be afraid to be associated with Jesus Christ. And that's for the adults too. Don't be afraid at your workplace to be associated with Jesus Christ. Since when? When we take up our cross and follow Christ, since when is it a shame to be associated with the name of Jesus? Oh, I can't let anybody know I'm a Christian. I might lose my job. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. You don't have to be preachy to acknowledge Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. The devil... Gets us on the slant to dead spirituality when we become ashamed of being identified with Christ. When we were early married, I was working for O'Reilly Auto Parts in the auto parts store um, warehouse, and I was a believer. We, were, you know, we were I think in ministry at the time, if not, uh, we were close to. And I was working with a guy who was attending a Christian college in the area. And uh, I didn't know he was a Christian, he didn't know I was a Christian, and we got to talking and I was sharing some of my personal story with him about things that had gone on in my life, and he asked me this question, he said, So how long have you known Jesus? It's like he he couldn't put the pieces together. He didn't know how long I'd been a Christian. And the moment he said, Jesus, I got nervous. And I was like kind of looking out of the corner of my eye, okay, who's who's around, who's who's looking? And like I was I was wanting to be like the the Christian ninja, I wanted to be, like, secretive and just kind of, like, work my way into talking to people. And now he's, like, outing, outing me in front of everyone, and I'm just, like, getting nervous. And all of a sudden, as I'm, like, looking around, I start feeling incredibly convicted. Why, oh, why was I embarrassed of my Lord's name? Why, oh, why was I embarrassed to talk about my Lord and to be identified with my Lord? And I had to repent, and I'd be like, God, never again. Never again. And I might be ashamed to say your name, to talk about your name. And I made a commitment to tell everyone on my floor that I was working with about Jesus at some point. And that next week, I had so many panic attacks, all shaky, trying to talk to these guys at work about about Jesus. But you know what ended up happening? Because a few of them came to church. And even these guys that were godless, they didn't have any faith, any belief. Anytime they talk about spiritual things and they had a question, they would come find me wherever I was working to ask me what the Bible says about angels and about spiritual things. God began to build bridges. And he began to teach me that we don't have to be ashamed of the name of Christ or the gospel of Jesus. And you know what's awesome is this word acknowledge, those who acknowledge me before men. It's a Greek word that can be translated as to agree with so you agree with Jesus, or those who are sent to concede not to refuse his directive, those who will obey what he says, but also it can mean confess, declare, or praise him before men. Jesus is saying those who praise me before men. I will praise before my Father in heaven. If we struggle to praise Him before men in a church gathering, it's going to be even harder to praise Him before men in the workplace. Or with our friends. Or in a place we're not comfortable. But but get this. If you praise me here on earth before men, when you get to glory, and you're wearing your white robe, and I'm putting the crown on your head, And the book of life is open and we get to your name. I am going to praise you before the Father in heaven. I'm going to celebrate you. I'm going to be ecstatic. I know this one. This one's mine. I'm happy to be with them. I loved him. He's mine. She's mine. They are forever with me. That's my kid. That's my bride. That's my best friend. He's going to be excited. To celebrate you before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus asks us to acknowledge him before men. And you know what, Paul, in Romans 10 9 and 10, says it so simply. And this is often first we use as we lead people to make commitments for Christ. He says, If you confess me with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Question, do you believe? And are you praising his name before men? Are you acknowledging Jesus before men? Are you awake, beloved? Or are you sleeping? Are you in a spiritually hypnotic state going through religious motions? Is there a difference between what you're living for and what the world is living for? You know, you might be in church. You might be active in your faith community. You might have a reputation for being alive. But what do the eyes of the Lord really see when he looks on your heart? Are you really alive? And if... You're being honest today and you say you know Pastor Joey I want to be. But if I'm honest, I don't I don't think I am. Well, if you want to be Jesus encourages the church really in these three ways. He says, "Remember what you received. Remember what you accepted. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, remember the covenant you entered when you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Remember the gospel." Remember what you heard, the gospel that Jesus came to take away your sins. If you repent of your sins and you turn to him and you declare him as your Lord and Savior, believing in his death and resurrection, you will be saved. Your name will be written in the book of life. And then thirdly, he says, guard it. Keep it. Keep it from slipping. Hold fast. Continue pressing in. Continue pursuing into your relationship with God. God is always up to something good. God is always up to something new. You never arrived where you have experienced it all. You've learned it all. There's always something new to learn and experience, new revelation to receive. And then he says, if you're going in the wrong direction, just repent. Turn around. Do something new. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If you are dead in your spiritual life, quit doing the same thing. Change direction. Do something new. That's what repentance is. If you're not reading your Bible every day, get in the Word. If you're not praying every day... In getting along with God, begin to pray. If you don't worship at home, crank the Christian music and sing to the top of your lungs. Do something new that you've not done before. Stop staying the same. Wake up. Arise. For the time is short. He's coming. And when he comes, there will be salvation in his wings for those who conquer and endure and who maintain their testimony in Christ. And beloved, Jesus is eagerly waiting to celebrate you before his Father. All he asks of you right now is to celebrate him before men. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this word to the church of Sardis. We thank you, God, that you are in pursuit of our hearts. You never quit. You never give up. You finish what you start. And you're so gracious and kind, God, to give us time to repent, time to wake up, time to lay down our burdens and pick up the cause of Christ. God, I pray against every embarrassing moment, every shameful feeling, every anxious thought when it comes to confessing you before men. And I pray, God, that your spirit would come upon us in such boldness that it would be laughable to think of being afraid of acknowledging Christ and confessing Christ before men. God, I pray that there be such a wave come through our young people and through our adults in the room here today. God, that we would scoff at people who would mock us for being a Christian, and we would turn the table and we'd be able to show them that it's actually the uncool thing to not be a Christian. That it's actually the cool thing to be a believer. It's a cool thing to walk with God. It's a cool thing to lay hands on the sick and see him healed, to, to speak to the Lord and prophesy and, and to declare things that are not as though that they are to walk in this life in a supernatural way because we serve a supernatural God. That we'd stop letting the world determine our reality and we'd let the kingdom of God be our very purpose in life. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that's struggling in their spiritual journey, who's gone cold, who's gone apathetic, who stopped acknowledging you, who's turning away, God, I pray right now that your spirit would convict, that your spirit would draw, God, and not in a shameful way, but in a way that shows him there is goodness prepared. There is something good on the horizon. They would just turn to you and give you their lives. And right now, if that's you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. If you are struggling in your faith and you know God is speaking to you, when I count to three, I challenge you to stand up to your feet, to do something new, do something you've not done before. Stand to your feet and come down and pray with one of our prayer team members, and ask God to reignite your spiritual life. If you've been doing some things, you've been making some mistakes, and that shame is in the way where you feel like you can't approach God, Jesus says, come to me, all you are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is ready to take that from you. Don't let embarrassment, shame, or guilt get in the way. When I count to three, you stand to your feet and you come down. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you need to begin a relationship with Him, you need to invite Jesus into your life. When I count to three, you stand to your feet, and you come down, and you meet with one of our prayer team members, and you let them lead you into that decision as you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whatever the Spirit is speaking, for the next few moments, you respond. And, beloved, if you're still in your seat, be praying for those that come forward. But if you're dead and you're ready to wake, if you need to begin a relationship with God. On the count of three, stand your feet. One, two, three. Stand up. And come on. Make your way down here. Come on. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Wherever you are, just come on down. Come on. No, don't be afraid. Come on. Come on. Yeah, come on. Don't wait on anyone else. I would not let anyone else get in the way of my eternity. I'd rather be 100% certain I'm going to heaven than 99% certain and risk that 1% on eternity separated from God for all eternity. If you're not 100% sure that you're right with God... Then get up. Come on. Come on. Come on. If you're not 100% sure, you come. Give your heart to him. He's he's ready to do a work in your life. Amen. Amen. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you.